Welcome back to Documentary First, an inside look at a documentary filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Jason Rugg, and joined, as always, by our documentary filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hey, Jason. Hey, everybody. And we're joined again by the filmmakers we had the last episode, uh, Neil Lozen and Nate Dappen from Human Footprint. Great to still be here. <laughs> Glad to have you guys Thanks back. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks so much, you guys, for giving us a little bit more time. I want to follow up. We left off last time, really. um, We were talking about the budget and how uh, how the movie was paid for. We learned that it was paid for um, thanks to uh, PBS and their belief in what you were doing. Um, And I just want to talk about how you used that budget. uh, Because as I was watching this, I was looking at all this international travel. I mean, you're in Nevada, you're in Hawaii, you're all over the place. And... You, there are six episodes, and so uh, you know, talk to me about all the different places. I want to ask you about that travel and how much it cost, and then I want to know about the music because I listened to the good and the bad and the ugly theme song playing in there, and I was like, "Now that couldn't have been cheap." Uh, so, <laughs> talk to us about uh, the budget through travel, through music, and anything else I haven't asked you about. We'll let you start, Nate. Um. Okay. Uh, well, there was a lot of travel. So, um, you know, I think I, for this, for just for this show was on the road, um, for 120 days, um, shooting, wow. uh, we went to 44 different cities, wow. slept in over 80 beds. Um, I shared a bed with Neil multiple times. I shared a bed with Rick multiple times. I slept in a tent <laughs> multiple times, slept out on the sea ice in the Arctic. Um, we wow. traveled domestically all over the place, lots of different States. We were, in Mexico, Singapore, South Africa, Mozambique, um, Canada. Um, so we, we traveled a lot. Um, and as we said sort of before, um, you know, we kept our team pretty light. You know, we were five people. Um, in most cases, that included Shane. So um, we try to keep it as cheap as possible. But huge days, um, you know, organizing a project like this, we do things differently if we did it again. But oftentimes we'd be shooting four different acts in similar geographic ranges on four different shows. So it was like, you'd go in and you'd have to switch gears. Like I, you know, I'm going to go shoot the Westminster dog show all day. Um, and think about, we're we're thinking about Neil and I are thinking about the, the dog, that act of the dog episode. And then at nighttime we meet up with a rat expert and shoot all night with a, a rat expert in Hawaii for the city's episode. And then, you know, we like go down to another and then like do another, another shoot for another thing, shooting the introduction for the starlings, um, starlings part of the invasive species episode. So it was, it was really messed with your mind. Um, and you had to be quite prepared. Um, lot of, lot of pre-production, a lot of research, um, and a lot of, you know, and, and then in the field, we're also like, Neil and I are like reviewing rough cuts and giving feedback. I mean, it was it was exhausting. Um, it was an exhausting year. Um, so there was a massive line item for flaming hot Cheetos <laughs> everywhere we went and but, coffee um, probably, or, but Red Bull or something. Yeah. One of our, yeah. one of our staff who was, who was looking over the accounting for one of the shoots, um, pointed out, this was for the, uh, for the Python shoot in the Everglades, um, where we were out all night that the, um, the, the Starbucks budget was larger than the food budget for that shoot, apparently. <laughs> this, is like, this is like an empirical fact. It's not like, not like they're just guessing. Like they actually did the accounting, and I was like, oh, wow, that's a really unhealthy way to be pursuing this project. But, um, but yeah, hopefully the results speak for themselves. 
there, there was a point during, um, I mean, we, we pushed everybody truly to like their limits. I mean, like not just ourselves, but everyone was at their brink, like a lot of times. And, um, Rick, Rick, Rick Smith, the DP of the show, he's like one of the toughest, most insane people, you know, he does ultra marathons. He's a total beast. And, um, and he's also a close friend of ours. So I think he was like kind of willing to put in a lot more to this, um, to this project than he would have to other projects. But we had just killed ourselves for like 10 days shooting dogs and then rats and then, um, cities and just nonstop. And then we, we, we drove down to Adams Morgan to meet up with this team that was, it was part of the rat act too. It's where these rat hunting dogs, they use rat hunting dogs to like get rid of, get rid of rats. I guess that's kind of like the only way to really get them, get, get rid of them um, from, from some of these larger areas. And it was like a thunderstorm and it was an insane experience. And we ended up shooting until, I don't know, really late, like 3am. And it was so much fun and such a rush. And it was such good. It's, I think it's really good television. Um, but Rick came up to Neil and I afterwards and he's, this was about halfway through production. He's like, guys, nope, nope. Uh, can't do this. <laughs> we cannot, we cannot keep working these 18, 20 hour days back to back to back. Like if you want to do it, you're going to have to pay me more. And, um, we were like, okay. So we proceeded to go home. Rick slept for an hour. I packed all night and then I didn't sleep. I just packed, flew home. He slept for an hour. I think Neil slept for a half hour or something. And, um, we proceeded to push, <laughs> continue pushing everyone. I mean, it was a, it was a hardcore, it was a hardcore, Year. Yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, hard. What, what I what I love though is that he didn't say he didn't say no. He just said you can leave <laughs> yeah. anyone. <laughs> You're gonna have to pay me more. Like, all right, we we can do that. Yeah, we we paid him more. <laughs> well, I appreciate the fact that you did do that. I mean, it is important to uh, to listen to our people and give them what they need in order to do a good job for us, even if they are our friends. Um, yeah. I, I know what you mean, because I did that kind of thing in Normandy. I think we had a 19, 20 day shoot and we were working 20 hour days, like had just tons of cameras and we only did it 19 days. You guys were at this you know, quarter for a year. Uh, it sounds like to me, and uh, that is intense. And I, I know that had to be a huge line item in terms of the travel and the food and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we learned to economize in, in various ways. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of Airbnbs, I think, you know, uh, in, it's a lot cheaper than, than hotels. Uh, and especially once you have a, a big crew and there's a certain sort of camaraderie to all being in a house together, um, that I think is also really helpful on a, on a shoot. Yeah, like that's this. my preferred way. Um, and you know, Nate, Nate and I would share a room a lot of the times so that we could get a smaller Airbnb and save some money. You know, we've, you know, we've, we've done this for long enough that we're pretty comfortable around each other. Um, so yeah, lots of, lots of little things. Um, I think, you know, you find, you find the ways to economize, but, but, you know, you can't do it too much or else, or else the humans really start to suffer. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so where was your favorite place? I mean, you've, you've mentioned a few of these places, you know, you were in Hawaii, you were in, uh, some other Arctic place. I can't remember what you said. Tell us, uh, kind of some of the big places that you went and out of all of them, what was your favorite? And I'll start with you, Neil. Um, so my favorite, uh, was going to Gorongosa national park in Mozambique, where we filmed this elephant story. Um, yeah. and 
you know, it was a couple couple things for me that really made that special. One one was just I had heard so much about this place. Um, PBS did a whole series about Gorongosa and the restoration of Gorongosa um, a few years ago, and it's just you know it's a beautiful series. And I just I'd heard so much about this place. I knew a bunch of people who worked on that show, and was just like, yeah, like you got to get to Gorongosa. Um, and then we got to go uh, with Shane, and Shane has done work there, has studied elephants there. This is part of what we were covering in this story was his research on the evolution of tusklessness in elephants, which is an amazing story of sort of natural selection driven by human hunting pressure, um, where humans really focus on harvesting the animals with the biggest tusks. And and, uh, so these tuskless elephants sort of make it through um, that intense hunting uh, environment and, and become more common over time. Um, and so being there with Shane and with Dominique Gonsalves, who's the Mozambican elephant expert um, that Shane collaborates with, and not only getting to see this place, but to get to see it through the eyes of people who know it so well, um, it was was really spectacular. And the moment that really stands out for me was um, Rick, our DP, and I got to go up in a helicopter with Shane um, wow. and fly over the park. And it's this place where it's it's vast and it's flat, and there's all these different habitats. If you start to drive through it, you know you go into a palm forest and then into like a little riparian riverine forest, and then out into an open floodplain. And it's very easy to get lost, and by the end of the day, just like not understand where you are or where you've been. And you can only really appreciate it from the air. Um, and so getting up, you know, to go up, go up in the air and see these elephant herds that are now bouncing back after decades of poaching um, and really get to appreciate that landscape that they inhabit was was just um, incredibly moving. Mm. That does sound moving, man. I am thankful that we get to watch some of that uh, through your <laughs> eyes. That That is incredible. All right, Nate, what about you? I mean, I, I loved so much. There was very few places I didn't didn't love. For me, the, the most exotic kind of unique experience, I don't know if it was the most unique experience. There's a lot of unique experiences. But, but the, the one that, like, I couldn't wait for. Like, it was, I just could not wait. I, I was counting the days for this, for this shoot to come down was our trip to the Arctic to go on a seal hunt with mm-hmm. this Inuit um sled dog hunter um so he he uh he's a he's a he's this young found this um we found this guy uh, we have our we have a whole episode about dogs about how we've transformed wolves into dogs and how uh dogs have transformed us in return um and and the first act takes us to the arctic where we're really trying to show people how much um dogs have shaped human culture and still today there are places in the world where if you don't have dogs you're in big trouble and uh, so up in the Arctic, we found this young Inuit hunter who, it, uh, it, in a place called Resolute Bay, which is the second most northern permanent resident, uh, uh, permanent human residence in the, in, in the world. Um, this 22-year-old guy, total maniac. He's out hunting like 350 days a year with his dogs. He's got, he's got sled dogs. And um, just getting up there is so expensive. It was a huge endeavor to get up there. And we had to go with the skeleton crew because it was so expensive. So it was really just Rick, me, and Shane who went up there. And right from the beginning, everything went wrong. Going through Canada, I have a flight that goes to Montreal and then Montreal to Ontario. And I, 
I have my carne all set up. I try to get my, my gear through and they tell me, no, no, they've already checked it through. It's going to meet you in, in Ontario. So I'm like, okay. Cause I, I, if I miss this next flight, there's not another flight up there for a week. I'm going to miss my opportunity to go hunting with this guy. So we get to Ontario, the gear doesn't get there. So my flight leaves in like six hours. So I get in, I get none of the Ubers will pick me up to take me to drive me back to Montreal because it's too long of a drive. So I finally get this guy he drives me, I drive all night to Montreal. I get my gear from customs, bring it back, barely make the flight out. And then we get to the Arctic. And the thing about the Arctic in the summer is that there's no sunset. It's just sunny all the time. And, um, we don't really know what to expect. I've got my tent, Rick and I've got our tent. And I just remember, um, basically the sled dogs towed Shane and Devin, and then Devin gave us a snowmobile to haul our gear. So we had a sled behind us and I was driving the snowmobile. And I just remember driving out onto the sea ice where we were going to be hunting and camping. And like, it was wild. Um, it was just vast wilderness further from any human settlement than I've ever been in my life. And within a few hours, we start seeing polar bears, like polar bear on the horizon, polar bear with a baby. We finally like Devin go, you know, we hunt, we film this hunting sequence and then we get set up camp. But it's like two in the morning because nobody knows what time it is because it's sunny outside. And as we're setting up camp, polar bear, sure enough, comes in hunting us. And the dogs start freaking out. And, um, you know, I just, it just felt like I, I want to be out here for longer than we can be out here. Um, but it was really remarkable watching Devin and these dogs. I mean, you, you can go out there with a snowmobile, but if your snowmobile breaks down, you're in big trouble. <laughs> they, 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 the, Devin told us that they have a saying that it's a, Quick, with a snowmobile, it's a quick way out, but long walk home. Um, and the thing is, is that they actually, they actually use these, they use these dogs to hunt polar bears. So hunting polar bears has been part of their culture for a really long time. And these dogs, they'll chase down polar bear and wear it down so that the hunter can come and shoot it. And they've been doing this for, you know, for, for, for as long as they've been hunting up north. And so you could just be in camp and have an enormous predator come right up to camp and they didn't want to come any closer because the dogs were there. So I felt perfectly safe and um, it was cool sleeping on the ice. You could hear the ice buckling sort of and making all these sounds. I mean, it was just a wild experience um, and uh, really would love to go back. I love that each of us chose a shoot that the other one wasn't on. What is that? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I wish you'd been there. God, it would have been fun. You would have loved it. You would have loved it. Yeah, no, that I am. I am jealous about that one. Those are just. I mean, I was phenomenal. I mean, I was just thinking as I was watching the uh, the first episode, the cinematography really blew me away because I, I didn't pay attention to it at all at first, and then my some at some point my filmmaker brain kicks in, and then I start thinking about budgets. Like, holy cow, how much did that cost? And then I think, how did he get that shot? You know, and that was what was really interesting. Is you guys had drones, you had people down in the water, you know, you had uh, you had scenes of uh, you know just I couldn't figure out how you filmed everything that you filmed. Now I'm even more curious because you have so few people. <laughs> Like it looked like you guys had cameras everywhere. Uh, I don't know how you made it look like that, but it was pretty remarkable. Well, I'll, I'll say a few things about it. Um, so Neil and I—I I mean, I think we're—I think we're, I think we're good cinematographers, and we we love shooting so much. We're we're we've been basically before Rick came onto this project, Neil and I shot everything for Days Edge. So we we love shooting, and mm -hmm. I think the 
it was Rick is an incredible shooter, but I think having like on most shoots three highly trained, skilled shooters who can all fly drones well, who can shoot with all sorts of complicated rigs, do gimbal work, do handheld stuff, who also understand sound. I mean, we were just able to multitask, you know, bring Georgia. George is a phenomenal shooter as well. So they were also shooting. So we could just come to a scene. We could say, okay, you're doing the gimbal. You're doing the long lens. You fly the drone. We're going to do this. And so like we could get a lot done in a short period of time. And like Neil said, no one was ever sitting around. Everyone was always capturing the imagery and much to the, our post. So our, our, our post-production manager, Elliot, was always like you guys have got to shoot less because they're killing me here. Yeah. All the editors are yeah. going through all this footage, but we <laughs> we we really feel like um, I don't know. You can kind of work a scene like sometimes the magic doesn't start happening until you kind of are working it a lot and trying to figure it all out, and it just means there's going to be a lot of garbage in there. But but we put a lot of effort into it, and we also had all these collaborations. So Canon sponsored us these these expensive. Sumi Ray prime lenses, which are these beautiful full format um, prime lenses that, that are made for cinema cameras. Um, and they've, they've got this really unique look. You know, if you open them wide up, they get these sort of chromatic aberrations in the micro details. Um, and we really tried to create these little vignettes and sequences that brought cinema level quality to, to a documentary production. Um, so I don't know if you have anything to add, Neil, but we took that, we took the visuals really seriously. Yeah. You also, I think your biology played a fact factor as well, because it seemed like to me, you knew where the animals were going to be or when they were going to pass or what they were going to do. Like there was some intuitive filmmaking, I think, because you're dealing with animals that, you know, most people can't predict. I mean, is that true? Did your background help you there? Yeah, I think to a degree, it, it always does when we're dealing with, with natural history, because I think, you know, Nate and I are very comfortable observing animals and understanding their behavior. I mean, Rick is also, a, um, in addition to shooting, you know, these like conversation driven kind of run and gun shows, like he's a, he's a veteran um, natural history shooter. And so, uh, and Shane is a what you know is a biologist by training too right so on, on any of these shoots there are like at least three people who have a sort of very high level understanding of of the natural world that's 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 for sure an asset yeah that's awesome wow. okay so i started asking you about the budget and then we got into cinematography so i want to kind of go yeah. back but this time i want to um ask you in terms of the music so i mentioned in particular the good bad and the ugly my mm-hmm. experience has been that i paid for one minute of music from south of the border in 1939 a song that no one alive has ever heard of and it cost me thousands of dollars and i have to pay that every two years uh so and you guys use several of those uh, as well yeah. as paying a composer um how did you get the rights for those songs? I mean, getting the rights themselves are tricky. And mm-hmm. then was your music budget expensive? So we didn't start out with a massive music budget. Um, and uh, we didn't end up with a massive music budget either. Um, but we we uh, we wanted to do something really distinctive musically with this series. Um, you know, Shane grew up um, and, and, and Nate too, and, and me to a lesser extent. Um, although I, you know, I still was in an environment where I was hearing a lot of this music, but Nate and Shane in particular were really into like nineties hip hop growing up. And, and um, you know, 
it, we wanted the series to feel different and to feel unique and, and having the, 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 the momentum of the series and, and the musicality of it be driven by this sort of like nineties hip hop aesthetic was, was really important. Um, and we, uh, so partly that means, you know, using popular tracks and licensing them where you, where you can. And, um, we didn't really know how that was going to work going in. Um, and, uh, and then we got, had a really, um, uh, a phone call with, with some folks at PBS that, um, that made us feel really good, um, where they told us that um, by, by statute, I think, PBS it's has compulsory license. a compulsory license to any published music. They don't have what to pay What does that any, mean? They don't have to pay anything for it. What? <laughs> and, and, and so because we were producing the series for PBS, we could lean heavily on these, on these pop you know, cues. Um, wow. And so, and so we did that. We knew we weren't going to get all the music from, you know, from published, you know, popular music, but there are these cameo cues, right. At the beginnings of certain scenes and, and critical moments in the film that just like wouldn't work without that, or certainly would not work as well. Um, and so we, we did that, you know, the, the, the caveat is that if this series gets distributed somewhere else, so say PBS licenses the series to Netflix, which, you know, is, is a thing that could happen. PBS and Netflix have done deals before, like then what happens? Um, and so we had to have a composed score that covered the whole, the entirety of every episode. And wow. so our composer, Adrian, I'll, I'll, I'll let Nate talk more about Adrian. Um, but uh, Adrian Young did compose a full score um, for for every episode, and you'll hear that if you watch the film somewhere else, um, you know, uh, other than on on PBS broadcast. Okay, yeah, talk to us about Adrian. Yeah, so um, very little of the music is popular music. It's something like four cues or five cues per episode. The vast majority of the episode is composed, even for the broadcast version of the episode, is composed by Adrian Young, who's a who's a legend in hip hop and and jazz. So he he um, <clears throat> at, at the time that the three of us were talking about the style of the show, Shane and I were watching Marvel's Luke Cage, <clears throat> and the soundtrack for that series is unbelievable. It's so good, and um, I, I had seen that that Adrian Young and Ali Shaheed Mohammed from Tribe Called Quest had, had, had worked on that. And, you know, Adrian's done a bunch for Wu-Tang, Snoop Dogg. He's published stuff for Kendrick Lamar. They've, he's collaborated with, you know, like legends, you know, he's done big Hollywood films. And so I, I, I thought there's no way we're going to get these guys involved. Um, but we sent a lot of emails and we sent them all the same pitch materials that we sent sort of to Bill Gardner. And um, actually not, not too long after contacting them, we got a call back from the Asian. He's like, this is pretty cool. Like, I think this would fit in really well with, uh, you know, the, the projects that these guys have sort of in their, in their portfolio, <clears throat> put us in touch with, uh, with Adrian. And, um, and we had to get a little bit more money. We had, well, we didn't get any more money, but we had to reshuffle around our budget a little bit more to pay him kind of a little bit more. I think he, he still took a big pay cut to work on this project, but Adrian then sort of wrote the score with this, um, with this, you know, with, with, with his deep, deep knowledge of, 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 of hip hop. And, um, you know, so that's, that's kind of how the music came together. So, um, it's not just the, the only place we can use those license tracks are during the broadcast and right afterwards on the app, but on, 
any PBS digital distribution um, for DVDs, any other place internationally that it goes, it'll only have Adrian's. It'll only have Adrian's oh, interesting. score. Wow. Because score it would be very expensive, right, to license those. <laughs> yeah. yeah, crazy yeah. expensive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, wow. so if you're a filmmaker listening to this, try anything you can not to put music that you have to license in your film for the rest yeah. of eternity. Um, okay, or work so, with PBS. Yes, or work with PBS. Um, you know, your, the music con- uh, discussion made me think of the editing. And one of the things that I really loved is how you edited pieces together to kind of um, speed up action. Uh, to give it sort of a more hip-hop feel, actually. Uh, talk to me about your editing, those kinds of decisions, what you had in mind with that. Yeah, um, so we, we we knew we wanted the series to have, a, you know, a, a modern feel, a little bit of a different feel from, from a lot of what we had seen um, in the sort of science documentary space previously. And... Um, basically our strategy from the start was when we came back from the first handful of shoots and had some, some stories to edit for the first episode, we gave a different story to each editor on our team and um, just had them sort of go to town on it. Right. And like, show us, show us what you think this series should look like. And um, the, the, the one that really resonated with us from that first batch we've alluded to already, it was the, that, that story about grass um, that takes place in Palm Springs. And um, our, our uh, producer editor, Andy Laub, um, did that one. And um, that, that essentially became sort of the style guide for the series. And so, um, and our other editors really stepped up in, in sort of emulating that. Um, and, and then typically, uh, the sort of the final process of bringing the film from fine cut to picture lock was done um, entirely by, by Andy for most of the episodes, wow. um, the la- except, except the last two. Um, and, uh, and so, um, yeah, he sort of stepped into that role as lead editor with his, his musicality. You know, he's not just an editor, he's also a music composer. You know, he's, he's written a lot of music for his own films. And so he brings that a real sensibility of like rhythm and movement into his editing um, and is uh, really skilled at, at sort of editing to music and cutting things in a way that, that sort of moves with, with the changes in the music. And um, yeah, we just, we just loved, loved that style and felt like it really, it really worked with, with, uh, with Shane and his, you know, the way that he moves through the world. Um, yeah, it just, it just felt right. And so we tried to push that as far as we could. Totally One, one thing agree. that we, one thing that we, before we started shooting the series, we had this big group brainstorming um, session where we flew Shane out, flew Rick out, and you know our team, our editors, everyone kind of brainstormed. And we were, one of the things that networks always tell you is like, we want it to feel fresh and modern. We want it to feel like, we want, we want to attract a younger audience. And so um, Neil and I, in our sort of up, upbringing as filmmakers, were really influenced by like the action sports filmmaking like a lot of the stuff that red bull was coming out with where it was like super you know fancy high-speed cameras like you know speed ramps and stuff like that but then i think a lot of our younger staff they were they really came of age as filmmakers in the social media world that really fast cuts some kind of frenetic feeling type things um and i think it was kind of like this combination of of like the action sports the traditional natural history science world mixed with this sort of modern um, sort of social media type style that we kind of 
brainstormed about. And then with that instruction, sort of like, I think Andy, Andy really sort of like took that and, 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 and turned it into that style. Um, but certainly like, uh, Angel, Angel Morris, who's the, has been, has been the other sort of one of the other major editors who edited the last two episodes. I think they brought in too, like, um, some of their own sort of fresh, fresh sort of social media, maybe like a, a little bit of a younger, a younger sort of come. It's, it's obvious in my, in my eyes, at least that they bring in this sort of, uh, editing style that's very much connected to the way we consume media in social. Yeah. Now that you mentioned that, thinking about it, some of these little moments in the show actually feel like they would be at home on TikTok, which is yeah. bizarre and not something I realized before. That is absolutely wild. It's a really kinetic series, and I know that it pushes, you know, each shot seems to push to the next and that sort of thing, but I had not considered that angle that is really fascinating yeah super huh. okay i have two last questions we gotta wrap it up because i want to have time for docuvu deja vu uh so the biggest challenge what were your one or two biggest challenges in fact uh neil why don't you give us one and nate you give us one we'll start with you neil um i think the the hardest thing uh for a series like this is just um knowing knowing what's enough uh in 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 these episodes a lot of these episodes try to do a lot and um and in our sort of concept meetings and, and development meetings and stuff, like they, they were, they were doing a lot more, um, before the final version that you see. And so, um, you know, figuring out like with these, with these crazy ambitions that we all come in with, like, how do you actually make that into an hour of television that, um, where the audience has a chance to breathe from time to time and, um, and you aren't just overwhelming people with like a nonstop barrage of visuals and information. Um, cause these are all huge topics and, and it's just like the, the shaping of those big topics into an argument that people can sit with and, and contemplate at the end and not just feel like, well, I'm exhausted by this, um, was, was the biggest thing. And that was a learning process. You know, I think the first episode we made is uh, actually episode four of the series. And to me, when I watch that one, I'm like, whoa, like we had not quite gotten it dialed yet. I still think it's a, I still think it's a great episode of TV, but it's just um, it feels like we um, I think we, we nailed the pace later on. And uh, and finding that finding that happy medium was was tough. Awesome. OK, Nate, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think I think, um, you know, like the, the physical, emotional grind of it was hard. Um, like, you know, we'd work, go on an 18 day shoot, kill ourselves, fly home, get home late, and then like have to be in the office at, you know, 4.30 AM the next day to like get through reviews. So that, that was, that was hard. And, you know, a, a year of that takes a toll. Um, from, from like a filmmaking point of view, I think, I think that like, it was difficult um, to figure out how much information to give people. I think we like, we were really influenced by parts unknown where you kind of like, you try to create a conversation and try to let audiences come up, come up with their own um, sort of conclusions about things. You assume that they're empathetic. You assume that they're intelligent, and then and then you just give them enough. And and um, Shane's brilliant, and you know he's got a lot of his own opinions about things. Uh, characters have a lot of opinions about things, and I think for us it was like, how do you how do you tell a story that's informed by facts? How do you tell a science series that also doesn't tell people what to do and it was just a challenge every act like how do we where do we does that sound preachy does that not sound right take it out 
how do we ask this in a, in a way that doesn't feel like, um, you know, like, uh, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't feel like we're preaching to people. So I don't, I don't know if we accomplished that every time, but we really worked hard to do that. And, um, I think it was like every, every act was like just, you know, a lot of thinking about how to make that strike that balance. Um, so I'm, I'm proud of it, but, but, um, you know, I don't, I don't know how other folks will, will, will feel when they watch it, if they feel like they're being preached to, or if they feel like, um, you know, they can make up their own mind without being told what to think. I don't know about Jason, but I didn't feel preached to. All right. We're running out of time. So I want to move right into our favorite segment, DocuView Deja Vu. All right. Last week we heard Neil's DocuView Deja Vu recommendation. Nate, tell us what yours is. Do you, so I have a question. Do you want contemporary, like happening now or something older? Mm, let's do happening. Well, I guess it really doesn't matter. Tell us what okay. you prefer. So I, I also, I, I guess, I guess like um, what I'm watching now is the hundred foot wave, which is great, but it isn't as good as the other film, which is more historic that I, that I, well, not as good. It's, it's not as engaging. There's a film made by a, a filmmaker who I think is one of the most brilliant documentary filmmakers in our genre, a guy named James Reed. He did my octopus teacher. He just came out with chimp empire on Netflix, which I think is probably the best natural history film ever made a series ever made, but he had a film that came out in 2015 called Jago, a life underwater, um, which is about this, um, this, um, I think it's, I think, I think it's pronounced, um, Bajau Hunter, um, from, uh, from the South Pacific, this 80 year old, um, he, he's, a uh, one of these free divers who holds their breath for a really long time. And, um, it's this story told, told by this, this 80 year old, free dive master. So Jago means master in, in the, in, in, in their language. And it's like an hour film that probably has like maybe four pages of script. And James went and interviewed this guy for like three days and took that three day interview, turned it into a film about this guy's life. It's filled with regret, bad choices, extreme danger, wow. beautiful experiences underwater. And then he recreates it with the kids, uh, with, with relatives, uh, young relatives of, of this, of this, of this, um, of this hunter. And I, I saw it and I, I just like, I kind of couldn't believe it. I, you don't even notice that the guy barely talks at all. And James just masterfully puts these tiny sprinkles in these few pieces of dialogue and then tells this story visually from the time this child was, this guy was a child all the way up through these tremendous life mistakes that he makes really close to death experiences to him today, still being able to hold his breath for like seven minutes. It's got all these super long takes of him diving down with fish and just holding his breath. And you know, that the guys filming it have their, their, their on, you know, tanks and it just waits and waits and waits and waits. And then he sees the fish that he wants, you know, and he spears it and then like slowly goes like, I don't know, a hundred feet back up to the surface. I mean, it's just beautifully told. Um, and it has all the human drama that I think all of us experience in our lives, but wrapped up into a life that we're, we're really not used to seeing. Um, so it's a beautiful film. Um, I think you, you can watch it on Amazon and on curiosity stream. 
Um, it originally came out on Smithsonian Channel, but I think now now the place to watch it is Curiosity Stream or, or Amazon. And I think of all of James's films, Jago's Jago's his best. I think it's much better than My Octopus Teacher. I love it how you actually got four Deja Vu documentary recommendations <laughs> in there. Uh, but that, those sound amazing. I can't wait to watch all of those. Uh, I have seen My Octopus Teacher, and it is high on my list. We've recommended that before on this show. Uh, okay, last question before we uh, let you guys go. I want you to give your best piece of advice to filmmakers just starting out or you know, maybe struggling to get their projects off the ground. Neil, we're going to start with you. All right. Well, I hesitate to say this because I suspect this is what Nate would say too. So I'm making his life much more difficult by taking it first. But uh, my advice is always make films. Just like, Mm. don't think about whether you need somebody to give you an opportunity to make a film. You just got to make a film. And, and that was, you know, for us as graduate students, when we first started thinking about whether this was something we wanted to do, um, we didn't have any money. We had our SLR cameras that we already owned uh, and we had a little bit of free time and we just made films and they were bad and that's fine, you know, but you just like the only way to do it. And, and Christian, you brought up this with the quote that you, that you shared from, from Ken Burns, like you, you can't learn it any other way and you can't get better any other way. You just got to keep making films. Um, and, and yeah, that's, that's, that's the beginning and end of it. I think. Yep. Good one. All right, Nate. Did he steal yours? Uh, Do you have another one you can bring? <laughs> no, I have other ones. I've had, I have other ones. I mean, yeah, I, I guess, I guess, um, you know, like with that thing with, with Niels, I, I think, I think the other part of it is, is getting it in front of people. Like, I, I think it's like, I just, I just, I work with people who I know aren't as good as other people because I like them. <laughs> and like, you know, I, I, I and, and, and they're good enough. And I think that like, getting your work in front of other people, getting, getting them to see what you're doing, building the relationships with folks who know you for what you're capable of, but also believe in you as you keep improving. Like it's not a quick process. Like you, you don't just drop into a film festival, make a connection and then you're directing a, you know, a, a feature film or you're directing a, a series like the one that we, that we did now. It's like, it's years and years of work. And it's like, it's, it's patience. Like you, you have to prove to people that you can make things and you have to prove to people that you're a good person to work with and you're an enjoyable person to work with. And that doesn't come overnight. It comes with cultivating real, genuine relationships. And like Neil said, like we go to Jackson to see our friends. And those are also our collaborators. They're also people who are commissioning our shows. And they're much more likely to commission our shows because they like us. Or if you know, maybe they don't like us and then they won't commission our shows. But, but like the folks who are, they, they know who we are. They've seen us there every year. They've seen us improve. And, 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 and uh, they know that, that we're trying really hard um, because they've seen us try really hard for a long time. And so those relationships are really, really important. So get out there, get to conferences, keep going to the conferences. Don't stop going. Don't stop pitching. Get your work out there so people can see that you're improving. There's no way for me to know if you've improved or if you are improving, if I'm not seeing your work at festivals or I'm not seeing your work all the time. So right. anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah great, great, great pieces of advice. And along with that is do not get discouraged. I mean, you have to stick to it for both of their pieces of advice, you know, to take effect. You have to be able to not quit. Uh, so if you're listening to this and you're discouraged today, remember what I said a couple of episodes ago, the obstacle is the way. 
do not let that obstacle keep you from achieving your goal. You're going to find another way around and you're going to be a better filmmaker and a better person because of it. So you guys have given us a lot to aspire to. Your series, uh, Human Footprint, is just really incredible. Congratulations to you. Um, I'm looking forward to where it goes from here. I don't think the end is going to be PBS. I think uh, more people are going to watch this. So we wish you all the best. Thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, Jason, take us out of here. All right. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. The Documentary First podcast is a production of Documentary First Productions. Help us create more educational and inspiring filmmaking content and share more stories of service by supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash documentary first. Also, be sure to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts so more people can discover our awesome entertainment industry content as well as our moving historical stories and possibly learn some new things along the way. Bye, everybody.